You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good evening. We will be in the Isaiah passage that we read first tonight, so you can flip in your bulletin back a page or two. Um, the Isaiah passage, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, is the first of four so-called servant songs in this second half of Isaiah. These songs, which might have been sung, might not have, myself am not so sure, they're probably a little more like poems than songs. They pop up in chapter 42, the first one, chapter 49, chapter 50, and perhaps most famously in chapter 53. And each song progressively sheds a little more light on who exactly this servant of God, this servant of Yahweh is. Spoiler alert, these songs are about Jesus from start to finish, 42 through 53. These songs are telescoping forward seven or eight hundred years to the Messiah, the God-man himself, who will come to earth to serve his people. Um, before we jump head first into Isaiah 42, I wonder if you would pray with me and for me really quickly. Lord, would you open our ears, open our mouths, and open our hearts tonight to behold wondrous things out of your law. Would you help me, a bruised reed, speak to other bruised reeds about the glory of your Son and what he's done for us. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So these nine verses... They tell a story. They tell a story on one hand of miserable failure and on the other hand of a glorious triumph. See, they tell a story about failing servants of God and one perfect servant of God. It's a story about us and a story about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God, through Isaiah, is speaking these words to his people, to Judah, in the midst of their exile. See, these are the very people who were supposed to be his servants in the midst of all other nations. If you'll remember back to God's promise to Abraham, this was what was asked of Israel, to be a light to the Gentiles and to show them the true and living God. They were tasked with bringing this God, the knowledge of him and the worship of him, to the nations around them, the Canaanites, the Philistines, later the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But instead of doing that, instead of influencing the nations around them as they were tasked, they were corrupted by them. Instead of showing the true and living God to the nations in the midst of which they lived... Israel inherited the idolatry of those nations. Instead of bringing others to Yahweh, Israel was brought to the Baals and to the other false idols of the people around them. So Israel as God's servant doesn't quite cut the mustard, right? They're by no means the first servants of God to fail, though. Many, many, many years before, Adam, God's sinless servant in the Garden of Eden, was faced with a similar choice, serve God or serve himself. Of course, Adam disobeys God's command to avoid the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. 
and disqualifies himself as God's servant, he and Eve are eventually evicted from God's presence, kicked out of the garden, headed eastward forever. See, the Bible is full of stories like this, right? You could play roulette with this book right here, kind of flip to any random page. Chances are you're going to encounter a story, something like this, right? From, 60, from Genesis to Revelation, in these 66 books were chock full of things like this. From Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Peter, the list goes on of servants who have been given great and high callings by the one true and living God, and who have very starkly and publicly failed to live up to these expectations. You see, failure in relation to God, failure as a servant of God, is part of the human condition after Genesis 3 and before Revelation 19. All of us have failed. Paul is very vivid about this. He says, For all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, Isaiah himself will say elsewhere, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, all of us have fallen short, and because of that, all of us can relate to Israel's story. All of us can relate to Israel's situation here, because to some degree, Israel's story is my story. Israel's story is your story prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. These, hopefully, would be the words of Israel as they hear these words from God in chapter 42. So, the Bible paints this picture, this pessimistic, generally sinful, not fun picture to look at, of the human condition, not simply or only to beat us down, to convince us how sinful we are and um, how little we are in, in the grand scheme of the universe. The Bible paints this picture of us as beings shot through with sin to set into even starker relief the grace, the love, and the mercy of the Savior. Servants of God as creatures made in his image, we've all failed. And yet there's one servant who hasn't. One person that if you land on as you're flipping through, you'll not find a stark or public failure. And that's the servant of God in Isaiah chapter 42, 49, 50, and 53. Take a a quick look with me at the first word of chapter 2. God through Isaiah says, behold. Well, behold what, Isaiah? Behold whom, Behold my servant whom I uphold, says the Lord. Now this word is crucially important here because of where it fits in its immediate context between chapter 41 and 42. Uh, If you're anything like me, I hope you are, uh, that made me feel better. We probably have a tendency to skip over this word behold, right? You see it everywhere in the Bible and uh, it's easy to treat it kind of like filler as a word to just sort of pop right over to get to what's coming next. Um, but here is God who, in chapter 41, verse 29, one verse before, says, Behold, all idols are delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. 
So Isaiah is saying, don't behold these idols, these graven images, these baals, these false gods and idols you've been worshiping that got you in this situation into exile in Babylon. Behold my servant whom I uphold. See, don't look at these idols that you've set up for yourself, right? Don't look at your job performance or at your perhaps spouse even. Don't look at your car at your bank account, at any of those things that can vanish tomorrow as things which will ground your identity and fulfill your ultimate desires. Don't behold those things. Don't behold these idols, right? For most of us, metal images probably aren't the problem, right? Not many of you probably have a shrine in your closet with metal images scattered all up in it, okay? For most of us in this area... Things like success, power, status, money, possessions in which we find our worth and which could be gone tomorrow. Isaiah is saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Look at him. Behold him, not the stresses of your life, not your task list for tomorrow, not the expectations that you might have set for yourself or the expectations that someone else has set for you. Don't look at these crushing weights, but behold my servant. Look to God's only perfect servant, the Lord Jesus. Why? Because when you look to Jesus, what do you see? Your righteousness, that's what you see. Your acceptance before God, that's what you see. See, this is who you're hooked to. This is who you're united to. These things over here, social status, bank accounts, cars, clothes, money, fame, anything else, this doesn't define you. This is what defines you. This is where your identity is. Not in anything you can do, Right? Not in any status you can gain, any task you can check off. Right? If that were the case, the gospel would not be good news. The gospel would be a crushing weight. See, if you're trying to run around before God's eyes and be perfect and think, this is great, it's all in my control, I can meet the expectations that I have set for me and that God has set for me, wow. What kind of pressure is that? No, Isaiah says, stop beholding yourself. Stop looking at yourself, at your own righteousness, but behold the perfect servant of God who became sin even though he knew no sin so that you, so that I, might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus was the perfect servant of God. He did everything perfectly, and he did it perfectly for you and for me, and then died a grisly death so that we could have life. Cheers and amen. Wonderful. We talk about that a lot here, and it needs to be talked about every single week because our fickle hearts from Sunday to Sunday have a tendency to let that slide right out the back door and forget it. But... Sometimes it's easy to get so concentrated on what Jesus did that we can forget what Jesus is doing. 
currently. Jesus didn't just leave the life of glory and love that he had with the Father and the Spirit that we read about in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, to come to earth so that he could make a quick, sterile transaction, my righteousness for your sin, down the cross, head up to heaven, see you when you get here. That's not what Jesus came to earth to do. The picture we see in these verses of Jesus is one of a Jesus who remains involved in your life, who continues to care about you as a person even after he has ascended back to heaven. Read with me the first four verses of Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Let's focus on verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax or a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Don't miss the importance of these lines. See, in Isaiah's day, if you're kind of weaving baskets or floor mats, right, you would do it with reeds. These things you could get down by the river. They're kind of stiff plants, um, pieces of grass almost. And you put them together, right? And if you had a bruised one, if there's one with an imperfection, just break it, toss it over your shoulder. You have no use for this reed, right? The first sign of stress, first thing you put in this basket, first time you step on this floor mat, the whole thing will unravel, right? Then what good is your basket, huh? People are going to be tracking their muddy feet in your house because your floor mat's broken. So this is the case. If you find yourself with a bruised reed... There's no reason to keep it. You can go down to the river and grab one, grab ten, grab a hundred. It doesn't matter. They're so plentiful. There's no reason to fool with a bruised reed. But what does God say? A bruised reed he will not break. The situation is similar with a faintly burning wick, right? If if you have a wick in one of your candles, we got candles all over our house, and there are a few of them where the wick is kind of like, it's long and it's kind of curved into the wax, and then the wax is like re-hardened around the end of the wick, so it's really hard to light, right? And so if I'm sitting in the kitchen trying to light this wick, and it's just smoking, right? It's not lighting, nothing's happening, I'm about to blow that thing out and just move to the living room and light a candle in there, right? There's no reason to mess around with a wick that's just smoking, that won't light, that won't do what it's designed to do. you probably blow it out, start over with another candle maybe, or blow it out, just come back later. It's not the case with Jesus. Have you guys ever felt like this bruised reed? You ever felt like this faintly burning wick? Maybe you do right now. Maybe you think, I'm too damaged, I'm too sinful, nothing can be done with me. At the first sign of stress, I'll, I'll break. Or like the wick, you might think, I'm trying so 
hard to hang on. I'm trying so hard to love the Lord. I'm trying so hard to behold the face of Jesus. I'm trying so hard to balance everything. And this wick is still smoking. It still hasn't turned into flame. It's, it's smoking and might be extinguished soon, right? Maybe um, it's a loved one who's sick or has cancer. Maybe it's uh, more money's going out at the end of the month than is coming in. Maybe it's troubles with your spouse. Maybe it's any number of things. But because of all of these, you're thinking, I am that faintly burning wick, almost extinguished, smoking its way into nothingness. Friends, there's great news for you here in these nine verses. If you're a bruised reed, Jesus will be gentle with you. If you're a faintly burning wick, Jesus will fan that flame. Right? Um, this is great news because Jesus isn't saving any other kind of reeds. Right? There are no other kinds of wicks that Jesus is lighting. Right? So instead of breaking this reed breaking you or me and tossing us over his shoulder only to go down to the river to grab a few more. Jesus gently places two stronger reeds right around the one with the bruise, weaves it in the midst of an even stronger basket, right, or floor mat. If you resonate with a faintly burning wick, Jesus does not pull the match or the lighter away the first sign of smoke, Jesus sits there and waits for the wax to melt around it. And as it still smokes, maybe he blows on it a little bit. And that wick is no longer white or black. It starts to turn just the faintest tinge of orange, right? It's not a roaring flame, but it's getting there. And Jesus continues to hold that match there until maybe there's a small flame or until maybe We're just stuck with the orange, right? Sometimes this is the case. But either way, if Jesus cared enough about you, if Jesus loved you enough to come down from heaven to live and die for you, surely he loves you enough to carry you through. You want to know how I know that? Because the next few verses are crystal clear on this. Verses 5 through 7 are nothing but straight promises. The triune God of the Bible doesn't just save you through Christ's work and say, all right, see you in heaven. Good luck till then. Hope everything works out. No, the Lord is opening parts of your heart that are blind and freeing the parts of you that are bound in sin or in shame. If you're joined to Christ by faith, God loves you and he continues to love you. He could no sooner disown his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, than he could disown you. So God, the God who controls history, who won't give his glory to another, who knows what was, what is, and what is to come, because he ordained it, will not break the bruised reed or the faintly burning wick. Robert McShane, whose Bible reading plan some of you might be doing or not doing, said that for every look you take at yourself, at your own works, at your actions, at your own righteousness, you should take ten looks at the Lord Jesus Christ. So take ten, 
Take 20, take 100, take 1,000. Behold the God-man, the true servant of God, who came to take away your sins and who will deal gently and wisely, even if not always painlessly, with you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.